Hello, thank you for joining us on Cornerstone College Ministries Podcast. I am Blake Brown. I am the college pastor at Stillwater Bible Church. You're joining us for our study of Nehemiah. We're going to take a look at Nehemiah and trusting God and being diligent to serve Him regardless of the circumstances. I hope you enjoy as we dig in. Towards the front, we've seen so much in Nehemiah so far, but the short of it is that People of Israel broke their agreement with God that they made. And so they were conquered like God said they would be. They came back and God promised, like God promised they would do. And their city, Jerusalem, though, it's in ruins. Um, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He asked if he could go repair the city. The king said yes, gave him um, things to do it. But it doesn't come without opposition from other leaders around Jerusalem. They build the wall. Once the physical building of Jerusalem is finished, they start working on rebuilding the spiritual aspect of the holy city and of the holy people. They start actually turning to follow God's law again uh, in a way they haven't done for hundreds of years. In some ways, not the right way for a thousand years. In some instances, um, it's been a thousand years. But last week, we looked at the dedication of the wall. This was the, we said it was the pinnacle moment in, for both Ezra and Nehemiah. The wall is complete, Jerusalem is restored, and the people are following God's law united again. So we're going to start in on chapter 13 today, where we're going to uh, see some reforms made by Nehemiah. One is going to be made right after they dedicate the wall, and the others are actually happen years later after Nehemiah leaves and comes back. Um, so, look at Nehemiah chapter 13. Let's see real quick. Let me get there. I'm going to read just a few verses here. <clears throat> Verse 1. Um, On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now prior to this, uh, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, right to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where he formerly they put grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked to leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that um, Eliashib had done for Tobiah preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order that they cleansed the rooms and returned their, the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and frankincense. So, let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning as we uh, look at your word that uh, you would just speak um, wholly and truly through it. And I pray that we would take these instances that happened and these things that are written in scripture, that we would use them to... Uh, um, Apply them in our lives, and so that we would live lives that glorify you. For all this in your son's name. Amen. Um, do you ever wonder why both JB and I, we always read the Bible as well as go through the, the lesson? Um, it's not just so that you're familiar with the passage before we go through it. Actually, there's a biblical reason. First Timothy 4.13, Paul is talking to Timothy, and he instructs him, saying, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So part of the commands you see in Scripture is to just publicly read Scripture. That's why we uh, make it a priority that we do actually read the Scripture before we go into it. And that's a complete side story that I just went through. But um, So we make sure we do that, not just teach them. But what we're going to see today, Nehemiah. 
five times when the people of Israel are not following the law. Um, they compromise following God's law, actually. And then we see where they stepped in and stopped it. We're going to look at four of them today and one of them next week. So um, what's interesting, though, is that all of these issues tie directly into the covenant that the people of Israel made. Uh, this is the second covenant, though. Well, not the second, but this is at least the, um, the covenant we see in Nehemiah that they make. Um, they only highlight a few key issues in the covenant with God. Anyone remember when they made this covenant? Not like the day, but like... Right before the festival of booths. Hey, there you go. They started reading the scripture. Like, okay, cool. We are going to make sure that we're actually following God's law again. And then they find a part of God's law. Like, let's follow it, right? Um, so here's what this key issues they had in that covenant were. We will not marry foreigners. We will keep the Sabbath. We will provide for the Levites, and we will follow the tithes, right? Um, these kind of go together, uh, but not, not completely. But um, these are kind of the, the key things that they pointed out in this covenant. They're going to follow God's law. Um, the Sabbath was once a week, also once every seven years. They have a year of rest. Um, the tithe, remember, it's not... It's not 10% of just what they make. It's more complicated, more like 20% every year and 30% every few years. Um, in the end, the covenant that they have with God with these words, thus we will not neglect the house of our God. And that's their kind of ultimate statement here because what happens is that that's what they had done. They neglected God's house and had been serving him, and therefore they were taken over. <clears throat> Let's look now at how they fix things. Um, so this is right after the dedication ceremony. They all walked around on top of the wall, you remember, and they're going and they like uh, praise God. They meet in the temple and they have joy. And from afar, they can hear the joy of Israel. Look at Nehemiah chapter thirteen, verse one. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However. Our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. So once again, they're reading the law. They do this a lot towards the last half of uh, Nehemiah. They just sit there and they're just having it read to them. Remember, this is the law. This is like, probably it's probably including Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Like, you remember like, oh yeah, Genesis. Okay, Exodus. Ooh, Numbers, <laughs> right? Like, but this is what they're reading. This is what they're going. This is what they're finding their joy in. Because they're wanting to, to follow these laws. That's what God has um, wanted them to do and they made an agreement to follow these things and when they didn't follow them that's why they're rebuilding the wall in the first place or right? building the city in the first place so they came across something what we would call Deuteronomy 3 remember Deuteronomy uh, comes from two different um, Greek words actually um, uh, duet which is like two right like a duet kind of thing uh, even though it's diut um, but then Onomos. Onomos is the Greek word for law. So it's the second law, the second time they've given the law. So Deuteronomy 23, 3-5 says this. This is what they were reading. And they said, No Ammonites or Moabites shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, and to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. So they read this in the time of Nehemiah, and then Nehemiah, the next line that followed, um, uh, and the next line is that they actually followed this. They said, okay, cool, we're going to do this. Um, but what is the story of the Ammonites and Moabites and, and Balaam? Right, what's going on there? Anyone remember anything? About, what's like a, a key moment from Balaam? Balaam. 
Talking doggy. Talking doggy. Cool. Um, so, um, so what happened is this: the Israelites had left Egypt. Remember, they were enslaved in Egypt, and then um, through Moses, they were like left Egypt. And they're going through the land, and they're traveling around. And anyone that like, came across them, they're like, "You shall not pass." They're like, "Bet." <laughs> Basically, um, like they're they're just destroying everyone because God's on their side, right? And they're following God, and so they're destroying everyone. Well, Balak was the king of Moab, and he was afraid of the Israelites. He was like, "These people are going to kill us." Like they're a huge group just walking around destroying people who get in their way. Um, and so he asks Balaam, who's kind of a prophet of sorts, like a soothsayer, that they call him, uh, to curse the Israelites. It's like, hey, I know that you're going to curse them. If you do it, then it'll be good. Um, well. Balaam said he would do what God said, and God told him no. And so he's like, no. And then Balak was like, yo, I'll give you money. And then Balaam was like, no. And then he went in the morning, right? Um, and so Balaam was like, I don't think so. And then went ahead in the morning and left that to travel to go curse the Israelites. Um, on his way, uh, Balaam was riding his donkey, and his donkey went off the road into the field. And he's like, what? What are you doing? So he beat the donkey, got back on the path, and then it, like, was going, and then it, like, shoved up against a rock. And he's like, what are you doing, donkey? Like, stop. He beat the donkey again. It scraped Balaam's leg. It started going forward, and then in the middle of the path, the donkey just stopped. And Balaam was like, are you kidding me? Like, move. And he beat the donkey very badly, um, trying to get it to go. And it says that God opened the donkey's mouth, and that the donkey said, um, why are you beating me? Right? Uh, and Balaam said that if he had a sword, he'd kill the donkey. Like, he, doesn't, he wasn't like, oh my gosh, you're talking. He's like, if I had a sword, I'd kill you right now. That's how mad he is. Um, then God opened Balaam's eyes, saw that there was an angel standing in the path. And what do angels always say when they appear to humans? Do not be afraid, right? Which implies there's a reason to be afraid. Um, so there's an angel standing in the path, and Balaam's like, I've sinned, <laughs> right? Um, I understand now this is not a good thing for me to do. Um, the donkey actually stopped when he saw the angel and saved Balaam's life from going to, to this um, angel. So the angel said to Balaam, hey, go ahead and go, but only say what God has going to tell you to say. So Balaam arrives, and the king is so excited Balaam's there. Balaam gets up to curse the Israelites, but when he gets there, he instead blesses the Israelites. And then Balak, the king who hired him, is like, what? Why, right? No, I hire you. Okay, go over here and there. You can see them better over here. And so he goes up there. And then Balaam's like, okay, I'll go over there. And then he gets up there and he blesses them again, right? And so uh, because God told Balaam to. So the king Balak, though, he never gave up. He then made war with the Israelites and he lost ultimately. Um, but that's the story of the Moabites and the Ammonites there. They greeted him with, like, death, basically. Um, so... Um, they were told that this was a good nation, right? God was made it clear to Balaam, or Balak, the king, that like, hey, this nation is okay. Like, don't, don't, right? Like, Balaam himself, the prophet, was like, I'm going to bless the, the nation here. So, um, he was told they were good, and he still was afraid and attacked them and said. So, in Nehemiah, right? They're like, oh, Moabites, Ammonites, us to be within us, so they followed God's law. They... They removed those people from them. Um, this act in verse 3 about removing the foreigners in this land is the same thing they did when they started recounting God's faithfulness to Israel. Earlier, remember, there was a prayer they made, and they were like praying about how good God had been, how faithful God had been. And when they signed this covenant, um, they separated themselves from the people of the land. So they're doing the same thing now. They separate themselves from the people of the land that God has commanded them to do. So that's the first thing today. We saw that they're separating themselves from the land. The, the things that God told them to do. Next, we see some time actually pass. The next thing we see um, 
uh, one of the people we haven't heard from in a while comes back on the scene. Tobiah, right? <laughs> um, if you remember, um, why is the, this, why, who is Tobiah? the mob boss of Jerusalem, right? He has a lot of influence and sway in the city of Jerusalem. That's why I have a little cigar in his mouth. I don't know if they actually had cigars back then. Probably not. I don't know, but maybe. Um, But he was a a local kind of ruler and had a whole bunch of sway in Jerusalem, and he's actually related to some of the nobles. Some of the officials in Jerusalem were related by marriage to him. So he was always a nuisance, right? He was against God's plan to restore Jerusalem. But look at verse 4. Now, prior to this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the uh, house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put grain offerings, the frankincense, the myrrh, oh wait, uh, the utensils, the tithes offerings, wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So there are places where they should be storing things for temple use, and they cleared out this room in the temple to put a room there for Tobiah's personal things. Right. Now, we could say, what are you thinking, right? We could be like, Israel, like, listen, Linda, listen to what we're trying to say. Like, you have been destroyed because you neglected God's temple. And now you're going to put one of God's enemies' stuff in one of the rooms in the temple. But then again, say we're serving God, as, as Elisha um, is doing. And then the super influential dude we're related to, uncle, whoever it is, right, asks if he can just store some stuff here, right? Like, hey, you have any room over there? I can just store stuff there, right? Since you're in charge of the storage, so hey, do me a favor, right? And they're really, they're really powerful. They're really, they might be hesitant, but then we think, I mean, how bad would it be to let him use a room? Like, just one of the rooms in the temple, they can just store stuff there, right? I mean, we could put this stuff other places. It doesn't have to be in this room. He might decide, you know what? Fine, let him use the room. What's, gonna, what's it going to hurt, right? But they forget that this is the man who was determined to destroy the wall and had plans to kill the people who were building the wall. Right? He was very much against God, the enemy of God and his plan. And we never want to let family relations cloud our judgment on what is right. Sometimes we can do that. We can say, oh, well, you know, they're the family though, so I know it's fine. I'll just, it'll be fine. We can just do this. Or I don't mind if I, if I compromise, compromise my morality to, to help them out or something like that. We never want to use family relations to cloud us on what is right. And that's what this priest had done. Notice what we see next, though. Look at verse 6 in Nehemiah 13. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, I being Nehemiah. For in the 32nd year, I also was not in Jerusalem. But anyways, um, For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. For some time, however, I asked to leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order that they be cleansed. They cleansed the room, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings of the frankincense. So all this was happening when Nehemiah had gone. He had gone back to Artaxerxes. Remember, at the very beginning of Nehemiah, we see that he asks uh, the king, or the king asks him, how long are you going to be gone? And Nehemiah says, hmm, about this long. And the king's like, good, right? Go ahead. Um, so then he returns, Nehemiah returns to the king after a while. And then ask the king again, hey, can I go back? He's like, yeah, sure. So he goes back. Um, let me just say, I don't think this mess would have happened if Nehemiah was still there. Um, we're going to see Nehemiah gets pretty upset um, later on. Um, and we'll kind of talk about there. But I don't think Nehemiah, he's a pretty powerful presence, right? You think Tobiah is the mob boss, but Nehemiah, like, he also has the people's not fear, but their respect, right, and their love. 
Um, so Nehemiah returned after a while and realized the people had compromised on their covenant. They're not keeping the holiness of the temple and they're letting family relationships dictate a spiritual decision. By throwing out all of Tobiah's stuff and replacing the temple stuff, he shows that he is severing that family tie, right? Like, hey, this, this family tie is getting in the way of serving God, right? And so get it all out, right? Get rid of it. And then he purifies the room. Um, what did they purify when we looked at last week when they did the wall dedication? What all did they purify? you remember? themselves, the people, the gates, like everything, right? And what was the purpose of that purification? What was the symbolicness of it? Fellowship. Fellowship, right? Fellowship with God. Um, also, they want to serve, right? They want this wall, this city to be a city that serves God. So in the same way, what we see with Nehemiah, he's rededicating the room for service to God here. He's purifying it probably again at this point. Um, to say, no, this room has a purpose and it's to serve God. So the second thing that we, we see here um, is that they've actually compromised their um, approach to serving God in the temple. And they've allowed this enemy of God to use a personal space right in the temple, like Tobiah's room to keep out. Um, and so Nehemiah comes in, throws it all out, rededicates it to be service to God, and then puts all the stuff back in there. Look at verse 10 now also discovered that portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. So what's really happening here is that people stopped giving tithes to the Levites. If you remember, 10% um, of like the 20% of the tithe was given to the Levites so that they could just serve. Right? Um, how many tribes of Israel are there? Twelve, okay. How many sections of land are there? Uh, eleven. Eleven, right? Whoa. What in the world? Who got who got gypped? <laughs> God. Right? The Levites. Actually, the Levites are the ones who, he says, they'll have no land inheritance. It says God is their inheritance because they're the ones who get to serve at the temple, doing the sacrifices, being the singing, being the gatekeeper, all those things that the Levites get to do. Um, and so the rest of the people just give 10% to the Levites so that they can actually support themselves and live and, and do the service that they are doing. People stopped giving tithes to the Levites. So Levites could not live. They all returned to their own fields to work. Right? They went out to some field and they're like, okay, I'm, I need bread. So I'm going to go plant some wheat right, or do whatever. Um, Nehemiah gets upset and says the officials have forsaken the house of God. They compromised on their tithe system. right? They were given to the Levites like they were supposed to. And then because of that little compromise there, the house of God is forsaken. Right? There's a pretty big consequence, people just forgetting that. So here's the last line, if you remember, the people's covenant they made after they completed the wall. They said, we will not neglect the house of our God. What happened? They neglected the house of their God. I wanted to put like hand air quotes around this um, to make it even more like, we will not neglect the house. Um, but... They had. They committed to do something, and then after a while, they compromised for their own gain. They're like, ah, well, I guess I'll get 10% next year, right? Ne next week, I'll do that. Next, next year, I'll do that. Next, next month, or something like that. Um, and they end up abandoning their service to God because of it. Because it was probably a slow, like, forgetful this, forgetting this, do whatever. Um, when we say that we'll do something, we need to do it. They committed. They made a second covenant to say, we're going to follow this. We're going to give the tithes and do these things. If we say we're going to do something, we need to do it as well. 
Jesus said, let our yes be yes and our no be no. Maybe people of our words, right? Don't let things compromise how we're serving God. Once we realize we've moved away from regular tasks like praying, serving, giving, or loving others on a daily basis, let's restore our lives back to a life of service. That's what's happening here. They've slowly moved away from serving God how they said they were going to or that they should. And then Nehemiah comes in and is like, what are you doing? Whack, right? Um, and then like, they restore themselves back to serving God again. So when we realize we're not doing things that we want to do, that we said we were going to do, right? Maybe our, our um, New Year's resolution was, I'm going to pray more. And then we get here to this part of the year and we're like, I haven't prayed since last year, right? <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, <coughs> but whenever we realize we haven't done it, stop right there, right? Start doing it. Be people of our words. Let's be diligent in the small things so we don't end up neglecting the big things. That's what happened here. They weren't diligent in the small service so that the major service got neglected in the temple. Look at verse 12. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, the oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I put uh, Shalemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. In addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zachar, uh, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed in the house of my God and in services. So Nehemiah found people weren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. So then he's like, okay, do it. Right? So they did it. Then he put people in charge of this um, service that were reliable. Right? People who had a history of being able to do a task, and that is why they were chosen. Hopefully, we're seen as reliable people. People can say, hey, uh, I'm going to give this person, and then they, I know that they've been faithful in the past, so I can make sure that they're going to be faithful where I put them in this location for serving, right? That's what we want to be viewed as. Hopefully, we are like Hanan and Padiah and all the other people, right? Then Nehemiah has a request for God. He says, remember me, do not blot out my little deeds I've done for your house, O God. So Nehemiah knows that God rewards those who live faithful lives. He says, remember me, God. I've done so much on your behalf. Nehemiah is grieved, I think, when he gets to Jerusalem. And he sees that the house of God is being abandoned. It's not like he's just like, okay, well, here I go. He's like, what are y'all doing? Right? And so he's like, okay, let's get back on track. Get back on track. Get back on track. So he's grieved when he sees this being abandoned. He just wants people to, to love God. right? People of Israel and himself to be pleasing to God is what his goal is. And so we ask God to remember all the work that he's done. Like I, just, I just want to be remembered for all I'm trying to do for you, God, ultimately. That should be our ambition in our own life, right? Our goal should be, I want to please God. That is my goal. That's what we should be saying to ourselves. For us, we know that our work in the Lord is not in vain, right? He's like, God, I've been trying. I feel like it's in vain, but I pray that at least you'll remember this, right? Even if they don't. We know that our work is not in vain in the Lord. It has a purpose. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What does it mean to be in vain? For nothing. For nothing, meaningless, worthless, right? Um, but it says your toil is not in vain, right? Anything you're doing to serve God, it's, it has value. Right? Let's serve him, praise him, when he does great works through us. I envision Nehemiah coming back, right? And put himself in your shoes. Like, you've been working so hard. Yeah, next question. Did you just say that God does great works? Yes, God does great works. What does that mean? Like, big works. Good things. Yeah, basically. 
Um, so imagine put ourselves in Nehemiah's shoes. And so you're there, um, and everything's good. You're like, okay, we're on the right track finally. So you go back home for a bit, right? And then you're like, hey, I'm going to go see how Jerusalem's doing. You come back, and there's like no one serving at the temple. And you're like, oh, no, right? And you're getting worried about the consequences. And so you get everyone back together. You have them serving again. And after a long day of solving all these problems, he writes probably in a tired state, just hoping that to be remembered by all the work he did for God. That's how I envision Nehemiah coming back and, and doing all this. So look at verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in snacks of grain. Wow. Sacks of grain, and leading, um, bringing in sacks of grain and leading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all the kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also, men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same, so that our God brought on us, on this city, all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So Nehemiah had a long day of dealing with these temple servants. And no one was serving the temple because no one was given to the temple. It was like, what is going on? And then he's out on the Sabbath and realizes people are working on God's day of rest. They're buying and selling things, which is a big no-no, Right? They're just forgetting God's day of rest. They're allowing foreigners to come into their cities and to set up um, little booths and sell fish and sell other things on the Sabbath. They've compromised their following of God's law. What's going on? Nehemiah gets angry and he asks, What are you doing? This is how we got taken over in the first place, but just forgetting God's law. Put ourselves once again in Nehemiah's shoes. See the destruction of Jerusalem and he weeps. Leads people to rebuild. They succeed despite opposition. They start following God's law again. They're unified in the joy of serving God. He leaves for a bit. I've set everything up. He feels great with the state and the people of Israel. He comes back. The temple has one of God's enemies' stuff in a room. He's like, what is happening here? There aren't people working at the temple because no one's providing them with food. People are buying and selling things on the Sabbath. Like everything that they said, like, hey, we're going to follow God's law with these areas. And he comes back and like nothing's working, nothing's happening. They aren't actually doing it. I tried to envision if I was like Nehemiah. And I imagine if I were to leave Cornerstone for a while and then come back and everyone is like drunk, speaking rudely to each other um, and acting immorally. I have this sense of weight that would crush my soul. I'm like, what's going on? Right? What is happening? What happened to get to this point? More importantly... Why isn't this being fixed? Right? Why isn't this being addressed? That's where Nehemiah turns to. He approaches the leaders and says, What are you doing? Why are you allowing this to happen? You're adding to Israel's wrath because of how they've allowed the people to compromise on following God's law. So, Nehemiah then, he takes steps to stop this. Right? To stop compromising God's law. Look at verse 19 came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise would spend the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah has actionable steps to stop this. 
It says that he shuts the gates um, for all of the Sabbath. It says, in fact, it says um, it grew dark. When it grew dark before the Sabbath, um, why would they do it the night before? This is kind of overkill, right? When did the Sabbath start? Sundown, right? When did they after the Sabbath start? Sundown. What? Yes. So for the first of all, it makes a lot more sense than us. We're like, when's the next day start? Like in the middle of the night. Right, which makes no sense. Um, but with the Jewish religion, Jewish culture, what they would do is that the day would start at sundown. It would go all the way through the evening, the night, and to the rest of the daytime, and the next sundown would be the next day. Um, why did they do it this way? That's how God did it, right? In creation, he says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so whenever you see creation and you go through it, it actually goes with the evening first and then the, then, then the daytime, right? And that's how he, how he divides it up. So the Sabbath started on the evening and went all throughout that day. What day of the week was the Sabbath? Saturday, or version of Saturday, right? the seventh day of the week. And so it'd be like us doing Friday night, just being like, boom, shut the gates to Stillwater, which, <laughs> know, how's that going to happen? But um, for Jerusalem, they do that. <coughs> um, a couple of times people camped outside of the wall. Like, okay, fine, we'll just wait here, right? Maybe people can come out to us and buy it the next day. Or maybe we'll just wait here till it opens and, and go in right then. Nehemiah apparently politely says, move or I will move you, ultimately. <laughs> um, they didn't return after that. Uh, they were good. So he's diligent, right? On the wall, stopping all of the things, saying there will be no breaking of this Sabbath law, right? Because we broke it before, that's why God allowed us to be conquered. So we're not doing that again. And look at verse 22. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your love and kindness. So dedicated people to guard the city. Um, We get another remembrance of pleas for God. But it isn't just remember remember me, O God, as he did last time, for all the good that I've done. It's a little different. He adds on this plea, um, for compassion according to God's loving kindness. You see, Nehemiah knows who God is. Not just like, he's just and he's scary. Right? I don't want to displease him. Just very scary. Nehemiah knows that God is compassionate and loving. And Nehemiah has his trust in a loving God, not a God of wrath only. He's not just trusting that God will discipline them, but also that God loves them. Remember the, the quote from Deuteronomy that they read, we looked at. It says that, um, uh, I don't remember what it said. I'm going to go back. Oh. Lord God has turned the curse into blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you, right? Talking about the Israelites. Because the Lord loves you, turn this curse into a blessing. And then we see here, <coughs> I don't know where we were at. Um, we see here that Nehemiah is asking, have compassion according to your loving kindness, because he knows who God is. He knows that God is uh, loving. This loving kindness this word is chased. <clears throat> Instead of proper in Hebrew, it'd be like chased, right? Um, throaty. Uh, but it means like God's everlasting loving kindness, the uncompromising love that He has. So we get a few verses or a few areas today where people of Israel make changes. They see they're not supposed to have Moabites or Ammonites in their midst, so they get rid of them. Nehemiah leaves for a bit. He returns and finds out Tobiah has a personal room in the temple. 
um, livid Nehemiah, throws his stuff out and purifies the room to be used as a service to God. Then he realized that there's like no one at the temple. The people who should be serving are not serving. So he's like, oh no, like probably this anxiety and is like, what is happening? Where is everyone? So people have not been giving to the Levites. People slowly stopped following God's law to give to the Levites and it ended up with them forsaking the temple of God. They weren't faithful in the little ended up being that they forsook the really big things. Notice this too, that people are doing work and business on the Sabbath, the day of rest, but to stop to that as well. His return is filled with reminding the people to follow the covenant they themselves made. Right? Those five points that we saw earlier on the covenant that they made themselves to follow God's um, law. What we ultimately have is that Nehemiah trusts that God will be faithful to discipline them again. Right? They don't follow again. Well, they're going to discipline them again. And those are to follow through with the commitment to serve God. What's the theme of Nehemiah? Trust what? Trust and diligence. Um, yeah. So, there's a question to ask ourselves then, too. Right? It's kind of the application and discussion, kind of in one. So, we're going to do kind of a group discussion here. Um, where do we compromise on serving God? People of Israel did, right? Um, we consider some sins like gossip or evil thoughts. Like, ah, oh, a little itty-bitty sins, right? This isn't really that big of a deal. Or we consider bigger sins the one to really worry about. Do we compromise our view of what is righteous, what is holy? Notice, though, that it isn't just that the Israelites were doing things that were morally wrong. Like, the Israelites were killing everyone. No, the Israelites were doing things um, that they were supposed to be doing, but they weren't doing them. That was the issue. Supposed to be giving, but they weren't. Supposed to not be um, allowing any selling and buying to happen on the Sabbath, they were doing that. Right? Have we gone lax in areas of our lives that we should be serving in? Right? And normally it's a slow compromise, right? We forget one day, a couple days later we forget again, and then we end up just never serving how we used to serve or how we wanted to serve. So, where do we compromise on serving God? about that kind of analogy thinking that you know we are the, the dwelling place of God here on earth is the Holy Spirit in us right he lives inside of us um, and we are his um, a temple of the Holy Spirit um, so comparing ourselves to temple and you see what's happening here is that they've allowed the enemy to take up residence in the temple right and so what is our like internal what's taking up residence within us right the temple of God do we have um, the flesh we have like oh yeah Everything's clear, but this little room that we have, you know, kind of by my kidneys, right? It's just, like, filled with, like, the flesh. I'll, I'll let it kind of rain free there, right? 
Or do we go through and do we try to purify and, and self-examine so that we actually are serving God the way we should? So, okay. What else? I think it's easy to compromise, and uh, specifically when it comes to being witnesses, uh, as it says in Acts 20, that we are to be witnesses to Christ and to the ends of the earth. And lot, uh, I know lots of us are good about seeking to glorify God and please God in every situation that we're in, but oftentimes we like look at work, I like our, our daily jobs, and think, uh, I was like, that's just like the part that's just in the way that I have to deal with. Versus thinking, oh, that's actually an opportunity. And I remember a, a few weeks ago being realizing and con being convicted that I've been looking at my work and I work a blue collar job. It's it's a tough situation to be as a believer because there's lots of rougher characters. They talk about a lot. They um, that type of workforce really embraces immorality in lots of mm -hmm. different ways, and it's uh, it's it's a constant place where I've got to be very careful about my own thought life and make sure that I'm not allowing myself to be conformed. But then how good am I doing about being transformed in the renewing of my mm. heart? Um, that's where I've realized, I've realized that I'm really good. I'm, I'm good about getting to reading the Bible. How much am I studying the Bible? How much am I meditating on it? Mm. How good am I going to put verses to memory so that I can be reminded of all the things I need to keep in mind? Yeah. And then that I was convicted that I've been looking at my workplace as a battlefield and that's not wrong. It is absolutely correct. It is a battlefield. But I've forgotten to, start to look at it as a mission field. Hmm. And when I realized that, confessed that, and then sought to, to have a ministry in there, that's when I started having opportunities for good conversations. Uh, I've had good conversations I've been able to evangelize to a couple of employees that have been, and uh, I even have a coworker who comes to church now, which is mm. just mind blowing for me. That's never happened. I've mm. never expected one to actually take me up on that offer. And he was like, "Yeah, I've been looking for a church." I'm like, wow, it's <laughs> yeah. a thing. That's cool. It's a cool kind of back and forth of you know having your defenses up, but I'm just having your defenses up and that being it, right? Um, ultimately, you also want to be out. It's, I imagine like having a wall around yourself or your mind, whatever. Um, but it's not just the defenses. You also were called to be lights of the world. You wouldn't, it's, not, it's like putting, right, the, this, what's like a, like a football team that has a dome around it, right? What, what, what's, like, what's it called? There's like, there's like a name of the something. Okay, I'm just go with a different reference. You go on SpongeBob and you have the squirrel's little dome thing, right? Um, even though it's clear, it doesn't work. But anyways, you don't want to put the defenses on over it, and there's no way for the light to get out, right? You want you put so a wall, but you put a gate in. You put a gate in, but also you put like ways to to have the light go out, right? To to be a mission field. We wouldn't want to build an entire center block with no windows house because then people can't see the light that you have. Um, so yeah, it's a good it's a good way to look at it. I mean, I think you could shine your light in your workplace just by being diligent with your work. If you show up, you know, if you're that guy that shows up 10 minutes early, works the nine to five, kind of, that's what he does, and he's just very diligent with his work, gets his stuff done, goes home, looking like, wow, like, I want to be like him, right? And then that's, what, you know, those are the questions, you know, like, hmm, how, what, are, like, what is his life like? And then you might even be approached, you know, be asked questions and you're like well all 
all glory goes back to the Lord. Like, I'm serving Christ, and, you know, I'm just here doing my work. Mm-hmm. I've seen that play out, and the, um, the only thing that, it, like, all of that is great. The only thing that is lacking that is that what I've noticed that after having done, done that strive to work diligently, I am noticed for that, and a lot more than I am. But then when I also add to that reaching out to them and, like, trying to evangelize with them in a good way and in a loving way, and doing and interacting with them in such ways that, and also asking for prayer if it's a big one there too, mm-hmm. and come and when they see that and I interact with them to that point, that's where they see me approaching them in love. And it's like First Corinthians 13: I speak with the tongues of angels, but have that love. What is it? It's like they see a lot, and I have a heavy influence just because of my work ethic, which is crazy. And then, but then when I approach them, it's so much. It, it like finishes it off. Mm-hmm. It's, it's love. Yeah, I feel like a good meshing of those two is um, kind of like the Corinthians thirteen thing of like you know if I work with the diligence of a diligent person, right? Um, but don't have love, well then it's fine. You can go go to work and like okay, I gotta get these tasks done. You know, like, okay, boom, 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 right? And you're like, cool, wow, that was so diligent, so efficient, so everything. And then here's all these people around you that never get touched, right? It's like ultimately you can't love them if you're just one track mind and not talking to anyone around you and stuff or not interacting with them. Of course, don't like you don't want to be like, yeah. and then be like, done, because then what happened to your tasks, right? So be diligent as well. But yeah, keep in mind that uh, I always say that um, actions are not uh, so. Like here's the gospel as a door, um, and here's like the door handle. Here's like the hinges, right? Actions are not the gospel itself, but they really grease the hinges to make it open a lot easier. If you're lazy and we're not doing a work, we're not even completing our tasks, and we're trying to share the gospel with people, they're gonna be like, "You don't even know how to work. Like, what are you? What are you trying to talk to me about? Like, get back to work, kind of thing." But if we're working and we're doing really well in what we're doing, doing it all for God's glory, then they'll be a lot more open to us talking about stuff. So let's make sure we're not compromising on what we're serving God, right? Make sure people of our words um, that we're say we're going to do something, we commit to something, that we're going to do it. Um, maybe be wise about what you commit to. We might be commit too much. Um, but make sure we're, we're um, consistent on that. Make sure we don't compromise on serving God. Make sure we trust God that he does discipline those that he loves, right? Like a father disciplines a child, so God disciplines those who he loves. And so we want to make sure we're pleasing to him. But not just because of discipline, but also because discipline is intended to lead us on the right path because he loves us. Right? Uh, and then be diligent to follow through on the commitments we've made to serve God. So, all right, I'll pray and I have a couple of announcements and then we'll go. So, God, we thank you so much for today. I thank you for Nehemiah, for the faithfulness that he has shown. Um, I pray that we'd be able to pray the prayer that Nehemiah does, that we just pray that you would remember us for our works and that'd be a good remembrance, not one that. Um, we wouldn't want you to remember, but that you'd rather be pleased by the works that we do every day. Um, I pray again that this this uh, wouldn't be something we just hear on Sunday and just go throughout our week, that we would actually think about it as we go forward and we apply it in our lives so we can live lives that glorify you and bring um, others closer to you as well. Put all this in your son's name. Amen.